Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts, Talia Vacassis and Kim France. And today we have Nell Scavell, a legend in TV comedy, directing and writing. Uh, and I want to get this right. So Nell, you can jump in, even though I haven't officially said hi to you. But if I do get this wrong, you're a writer on The Simpsons, Murphy Brown, Newhart, uh, famously, you were the second woman ever hired to write for Late Night with David Letterman. Uh, she was the creator of the show Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and she co-wrote the book that became a phenomenon, Lean In. In 2018, she wrote her own memoir, Just the Funny Parts, and I personally harassed Nell for months to get her on the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> hi, Nell. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm 59. You're going to ask, so can we just get it over with? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not far behind you now. <laughs> Fantastic. I like a proactive guest. So tell us how you got into writing comedy for TV. So, you know, it's interesting because I grew up and I always thought women were funny, right? I had these two hilarious aunts. My my Aunt Jane was a great joke teller. You know, there there's this whole belief that women can't tell jokes. She did the voices. She she took her time. I unfortunately sort of internalized some of that women aren't good joke tellers and I tend to speed through my jokes, but not Aunt mm. Jane. She did all the voices, the setup and always nailed the punchline. And then I had another aunt, my Aunt Pinky, who had this very mordant dry wit. And um, I tell the story in my, in my book about my sister Alice was on the sofa reading Little Women when we were young. Mm. And Pinky walked by her, tapped her on the oh, shoulder, yes. and <laughs> says, don't get too attached to Beth. <laughs> I'm sorry, I started laughing. I just remembered that part from the book. It was hilarious. <laughs> no, it's fine. And so... <laughs> You know, and it was also this wonderful time when Joan Rivers was the guest host on The Tonight Show. 
And I thought she was way funnier than Johnny Carson. And Mm -hmm. so I just always thought women were funny. I mean, it's interesting. Why do you think men decided to start saying women weren't funny? Well, because they were threatened by the women who were funny. Right, because comedy is something of value. And unlike land or political clout, anyone could claim it, right? It was access, anyone had access to being funny. And so the people in power needed to find a way to limit it. And so you get that, like, it's not ladylike to make jokes. And when that didn't work, they just flat out started saying women weren't funny. You know, the sad thing is culturally, it stuck. Yeah, it really did. Yeah, they did a study not long ago out of the University of Arizona where they asked 200 people to react to male and female retail store managers giving the same presentation on sales performance. And in one, they asked the managers to use humor. There was a script. So both the men and the women were saying the same script. When the women used the humor, they were perceived as being disruptive. Hmm. And the men who were funny were perceived as having high status. And everyone liked the women better when they didn't try to be funny. Hmm. So interesting. That makes me think of you had a chart in your book, too, that was also like about how women showrunners are perceived. That's kind of it reminds me of what you're just saying, because it was like men who argue a point thoughtful, women who argue a point crazy, men who miss deadlines creative, women who miss deadlines crazy, men who cry at work sensitive, women who cry at work crazy. Like the perception of it is different for both genders. Yeah, I mean, you're either difficult or crazy or both. Mm. And, you know, that's something I try very hard to monitor in myself, too, because I'll go there also. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned from co-writing Lean In was how biased women are against women, how much we've internalized the bias. Hmm. No, I think women, I mean, I saw it all the time when I worked in fashion, women could be women's worst enemies. Oh, yeah. And think of the judgment about women's bodies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. From other women. It's just earth shattering. But do you think women in your career have made you feel like you're not funny? Less so, I think. No, I mean, I had some wonderful mentors like Robin Schiff was a huge supporter of mine. She wrote Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Mm -hmm. And I was really lucky that, um, you know, after I quit Letterman, I really needed a job and I wanted to come back to L.A. And I I had left, quit a sitcom job to go back to New York and write for Late Night, which was my dream job that turned out to be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So um, I was just really lucky that Robin read a script of mine and put me up for a job. It seems to me like the people I know who've written for TV and existed in TV writers' rooms, they just sound like the harshest places where you have to learn how to just throw out lines and not care if people shoot them down. How do you learn to have such a thick skin about things like that? (laughs) Well, I'm in the middle of five kids, and I (laughs) do think that was the best training. I mean, my siblings are all very funny and very verbal, So, and we had dinner together every night, and that was good training. Uh, And I don't have the don't interrupt people belief that I think stops a lot of women. But at the same time, I I learned how to be very quick about my pitches, like surgical strikes. 
And one of the pieces of advice I give a lot of young women is because we don't listen to women, women tend to repeat themselves. Have you noticed mm. that? Yes. Yeah. Like you mean in a meeting? In a meeting. And it's yeah. like, get in, say your piece and get out. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Jewish also? Well, culturally, not rigid. No, <laughs> no we're all culturally <laughs> Jewish. No, I'm just wondering because of the don't interrupting thing. I was like, well, I don't know anybody who's raised Jewish who doesn't interrupt people. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true. And you've also been a very outspoken critic of the ratios of men to women in the writers' rooms. Uh, I love there was a quote in the book, which is actually Alexandra Petri, the hilarious writer oh, who tweeted. I love her. Yeah, she's so funny. I wish I could take younger me and tell her, if you're the only girl in the room, it doesn't mean you're better. It means something is wrong. So what is that about? Well, there used to be the um, phenomena of first and only. And for some people, that became this badge of honor that somehow this high status had been conferred on you. There's a belief that you're special. And I never really felt that way. Very early on in my career, I was on a show that was short-lived. And the best thing about the show is the writing partnership in the office next to mine was Conan O'Brien and Greg Daniels, who became mm -hmm. lifelong friends and are hilarious, as the entire world now knows. But we were sitting around after the show got canceled, and we were all worried whether we would ever work again. And one of the other guys, a guy named Phil, said, well, now you're lucky. And I was like, why am I lucky? He said, because every show's looking for a woman. And I said, a woman and one, nine yeah. men. How does that make me lucky? So even early on, I got that this ratio was not in my favor, even if I was that one woman who got through. You know, I've thought a lot about why I was able to break in and what made me a good culture fit. You know, I had this background as a sports writer, so I think that was helpful. Mm. I had gone to Harvard, even though I wasn't on the lampoon because it was so intimidating to me, but that was another connection. I think I was, honestly, I was cute, but not so attractive as to be distracting, mm -hmm. and I think that was helpful. <laughs> I was one of the guys. I dress, you know, they always say dress for the job you want. I dressed like a boy. I <laughs> wore my T-shirts and my jeans, and I did work to fit in. Mm. Right. Mm. When did you start speaking up? When did you start feeling like you had been around long enough and were confident enough to speak up about the inequities that you saw? Well, I do think with age, it um, there was definitely an outspokenness that came with age, and I knew throughout it hadn't seemed to get better in the early stages of my career. I was often the only woman in the room. And then I get to 2009 and I'm on a really fun show called Warehouse 13. And again, I was the only woman in the room. So that started me thinking. And then around that same time, David Letterman goes on camera and says, I have had sex with women who work for me which was a surprise to no one who had ever worked with him. <laughs> and Nancy Franklin, who's this amazing writer, she was at The New Yorker at the time, mm -hmm. had written a column, I think it was about Jay Leno, and at the end noted that Leno, Letterman, and my old pal Conan, none of their shows 
had a single female writer on them. And hmm. so something inside me just broke hmm. <laughs> and said, you've got to speak up. And so I did. <laughs> That's what led to your Vanity Fair article that called out David Letterman? Right. It called them all out. And, and it basically, I knew all the arguments they could make. And so I set about debunking all those arguments in that piece and saying that you have no women because you don't want to have women on your staffs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And within a year, they had all hired women. I brought tokenism back, guys. <laughs> <laughs> now, the shows are much better now. They're much, much better. They're not 50-50, but they're way better. That was my question. I was wondering about that, if it has improved very much. It has. It really has. So that gives me hope. And I think when you see the success of like Amber Ruffin, who is so amazing on Seth Meyers' show, mm -hmm. you really appreciate how it's not good for the women. It's good for the show. Right. It, it broadens your audience. It broadens the kind of humor you can do. And it broadens your depth. I mean, the week after the George Floyd video and protests, I mean, did you watch like Amber Ruffin started the show each night with a different story about run-ins with the police that she had had. And they mm -hmm. were really moving. Hmm. I hadn't I seen I didn't that. see them actually. Yeah. One thing I really appreciate about your humor now is that it's not self-deprecating. It comes from a really confident place, I feel like. Is that intentional? Or do you even agree? <laughs> I do agree. I completely agree. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut once summed it up beautifully. He said, some people are funny, some are not. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to dissect what your own humor is. But I grew up loving Albert Brooks, who is self-deprecating. Yes. So and it's Joan not Rivers, like, too. Yes. I'm such a skeptical person. I question everything. And so I think that's where my comedy comes from. Uh, how old were you when you realized you were really funny? Um, it's so hard because you can't judge it yourself. You know, I think I, I talk about how I think why people like comedy is because it has this instant impact. Like if you tell a joke and someone laughs, you feel that impact on the other human you know, being. Yeah, you right. know, it's funny. Like you get the instant feedback. Right. And I will say that I remember getting in touch. This is after I had had a long, successful career with a high school friend of mine. And one of the questions I said, asked her was, was I funny in high school? Because when I look back, I just think I was angry. <laughs> and she said, no, you were really funny. <laughs> but the two are kind of similar, right? It reminds me of the 30 Rock episode when Tina Fey is, she, she's being in high school again. And oh, she that one's sad. perceives herself as being persecuted. And then the truth was she was like horrible to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I don't think I was horrible, but I was, um, I viewed everything through that lens. I feel like some, it might be family background as well, because I feel like my brother and I view everything through, we joke about everything. And when my mother was dying at the hospital, she was in palliative care. My brother and I were cracking jokes to each other around her. And my father, who very much is not from that tradition, was horrified. And we were just like, 
this is how we process things. This is right. just how we deal. It's how we cope even with something that is very difficult. I feel like sometimes that's just the way you are. Oh, I love that story. Because we, yeah, that's very much like my family. Although my dad, mm-hmm. my dad is hilarious. And I'll tell you that the day after our mom died, the, all the kids were home. And at one point, my siblings, someone had ordered pizza and someone else was, they were handing money over to pay for it. And my dad, who was obviously very sad and confused, looked over at the exchange of money and said, what's going on? And I said, oh, uh, <laughs> I think I said, like, Alice had yesterday in the death pool. <laughs> <laughs> And my dad looked at me and he said, I don't know whether to be horrified or proud. (laughs) Oh, my God. We're going to take a quick break for some ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once-daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. 
Welcome back to Everything is Fine. You also worked at the late, great Spy Magazine, and I remember your byline well there because I was working at Seven Days and then Sassy in those days, and I was so jealous. I was just so jealous of everything you guys were doing there. What an amazing time that must have been. I was so lucky, and you don't know it at the time, but if in your 20s you get to work with people who say, go harder, be funnier, be edgier, it's so gratifying and it pushes you in a way that, you know, so often I think we hold ourselves back, especially women. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they just, they just kept telling me go harder. And it was such a great lesson for me to hear at that juncture in my life. And they also had, they had women on staff at Spy. Susan Morrison had a very senior job there. It seems to me that there were, that was a place that was pretty um, integrated gender-wise? Uh, let's not get carried away. And, <laughs> and there certainly, there was no, there, I'm trying to think if there was anyone of color. Oh, God, well, staff. that's a huge problem in publishing. I mean. Well, that's the other thing about the Letterman show. While its numbers of women were abysmal, in 33 years on the air, it had zero writers of color. Not yeah, one. I mean, that is so tragic when you think of all the careers that show started. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I wanted to circle back for a second to the Letterman story. The Vanity Fair article got a lot of attention, and it led to you sitting down with Dave Letterman and getting an apology. And so I want to know, what did that feel like? So that's 10 years later, I wanted to do an update. And my first Hmm. thought was, well, I'll just find out all the numbers and and see what impact it made. And that seemed a little boring. And so I reached out to Dave's PR person, who I had actually become friendly with because, I, and I write about this in my book, in a weird twist, Dave and I end up working on the Kennedy Center Honors together so I reached out and, and he agreed to meet with me and my stipulation was that he had to read this article I had written 10 years ago, which he claims he had not read. Um, and if he did, I'm sure he forgot it. And then we just had a really good conversation about it. I mean, the, uh, the 10 year later article, you sort of say like, well, there was like an oops, sorry part of it. But then you did describe it as though he apologized more deeply for other things. Like actually... Another story that you wrote in your book was how you were coerced into a sexual act by a colleague because he had influence over oh, your Oh, it, it was by the head writer, not a colleague. Which was <laughs> okay. so yeah. fucking brave of you to put in your book. Exactly. It's funny because I wrote it before Me Too broke. And at first I was really nervous about telling the story. And then between the time I wrote it and the book came out, Me Too breaks. And then I couldn't wait for <laughs> for the right. book to come out. Did you consider not telling it? Oh, of course. I mean, I considered taking it to the grave. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to tell it is because we're talking about um, women of a certain age, too. I think when you're young and you look at someone who's been successful, you kind of think, well, nothing bad ever happened to her. <laughs> like, right. like she sailed through. She was able to do it. And I wanted to say, no, it, it, there were parts that really sucked. And there were, mis- I don't want to say mistakes I made, but, you know, there were 
uncomfortable, possibly criminal moments. <laughs> I liked how, though, the way you told the story and the moment when you're kind of like, you're putting your fingers through his hair like that. <laughs> his toupee. <laughs> discover his rug. His yes. But that, it, it felt so true to me of those moments that we all find ourselves in where we're like, am I into this? Oh, wait, I don't think I'm into this. <laughs> Right, like cat person. Yeah, yeah. I do think, I mean, and I do believe we mistake sexual power for actual power. Or as the great Gloria Steinem once said, if you could sleep your way to the top, there'd be more women at the top. (laughs) (laughs) In a way, it was good. It happened early in my career because I really never crossed that line again. And it, it was really helpful to me to feel that wall between personal and professional. Right. Mm. Just because you mentioned Me Too, I noticed that some of the actresses on Charm, there was Alyssa Milano, Rose McGowan. I was like, is it a coincidence that so many of the women who have intersected with Nell's career are on the forefront of the Me Too movement? Like, what is up with that? So I, I won't take credit. They're amazing. But I do wish someone would write an article about that. And there were others. Krista Vernoff was also, and she runs Grey's Anatomy, and she's written some amazing pieces for The Hollywood Reporter about sexism. But I, I will tell you, the link is that show, creatively, the engine of that show was all female, mm-hmm. but all the executive producers and spelling were male. And one of them, this guy Brad Kern, was fired from his job at NCIS for sexism and bullying. And I think we were, I don't know, victims isn't quite the right word, but that was an up-close cauldron, shall we say, (laughs) of, (laughs) of women doing a lot of the hard labor and the men actually impeding, but having the final say. Right. Well, I found that in magazine publishing, too, because there there were and had been for many, many, many years powerful women in magazine publishing, you know, back to the 30s, you know, but men were always at the tippy top. Right. And still are, pretty much. Now, when people say that there aren't enough women directors or directors of color, they say there's a pipeline problem. Can you tell us about the op-ed you wrote for The Times about the broken doorbell problem? So I don't buy into the whole pipeline theory. And it's a problem, too, with all these training programs and the assumption that these people like, who are outside, who, well, who aren't white men, need, just need more training. They don't. There's so many capable, talented people who could start tomorrow. And we just keep putting off the equality, right? Because if you say it's a problem in the pipeline, then you can just kick the can for another 10 years. But it is a broken doorbell problem because we're standing on the porch, ringing the doorbell, (laughs) begging to be let in, and they're not opening the door. Right. Mm -hmm. You wrote about how Kurt Vonnegut said that while men lose their sense of humor at 63, women lose it at 29. I know. <laughs> 29? It's just amazing. How did that make you feel? Oh, terrible. From then on, I felt like I was on borrowed time. 
Like, why? <laughs> why did he feel that way? What happened? I mean, once you have children, then it's all over? Or? I, I think so. I think that's part of it. And, and, you know, I used to, when I would start a new job and people would go around the room and be getting to know each other, inevitably someone would say, well, do you have kids? And I would always say yes, too, but I'm blanking on their names. <laughs> Because I didn't want to be seen as, you know, the mom, because moms aren't funny. Right. Moms are not cool. Oh, the maternal penalty gap is real. I mean, it's been shown over and over, mm. you know, that after having a kid, a woman's salary for the same number of hours goes down and a man's goes up. So depressing. Mm. Yeah. You know, but one of my favorite shows these days is Better Things, which is about motherhood. Right. But... She's lucky. I mean, Roseanne was a big hit, so. Right. <laughs> but it, here's what's interesting. When I, so the first time I went to the Emmys was in 1990 with The Letterman Show. And I'm sitting there in the audience, and they announced the best comedies. And these were also huge hits. And it's Murphy Brown, Designing Women, Golden Girls, Cheers, mm. and The Wonder Years. Mm. Three and a half of these shows were created by women. Diane mm. English wins that year for Murphy Brown. And it makes me so sad that I, it was so proven a long time ago that not only were women capable of creating popular shows that were critical successes, and then we just got pushed back. And I think it was the later Clinton years and then the Bush years were just a terrible time. Hmm. But so back to the Kurt Vonnegut quote, your 30 years past... <laughs> When, you, when your expiration date, basically, how is it working today? Oh, well, the, you mean in the middle of a pandemic and Trump's president? <laughs> it's just the <laughs> jokes keep coming. Um, yeah. So, for example, I, I believe it's a good thing that there's political correctness. I, I actually think if you want to take away, you can't make fun of you know, racism, or, or you can make fun of racism, but, you know, you can't make jokes about that are racial. It's like, all right, so you can make jokes about everything else in the world except that. That's okay. Would I have felt that way in my 20s? I'm not sure. I think I might have been more of a gonzo, everything's up for grabs kind of humor. Do so you think you've become a little more sensitive? sensitive to other I think people. the word you're looking yeah. for is sensitive. Yeah, I was afraid to say it, but um, do you feel like people look at you differently or that you're uh, sometimes on the other side of ageism? Oh, I'm so fully on the other side of ageism. And, you know, it's, it's real. The Writers Guild just came out with its inclusion report and the hardest hit class was writers over 55. And despite making up 29% of the total U.S. population and 22% of the labor force, um, people over 55 were only 12% of TV writers employed in, in the last season. Um, mm -hmm. And that number's even smaller if you look under showrunners. So if writers at supervising producer, which is still a high level or below, Last year, um, writers over 55 were just 1%. Wow. Hmm. 
And it's frustrating because if you're a lawyer and you're over 55, you are hitting your stride, right? Right. (laughs) You're on the management team, you're (laughs) enjoying your life and doing what you do best. And it's very frustrating. I, I still write spec scripts and people read them and they love the writing and there's always a reason they don't get made. Hmm. It feels like an industry kind of almost like um, social media director or something where they just want the person just out of college. Right. Well, they're cheaper in addition to everything else. Well, but there's the whole fresh voice. I mean, I think a lot of people over a certain age would be happy to work for, you know, sell ourselves short just to keep doing what we're doing. But I think everyone loves the potential, especially for women. We value the potential of young women more than we value the experience of older women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about that often on the show, that experience isn't the thing that's valued. Yeah, I've been listening to, I know you had Corinna Longworth on your show, and she's doing mm-hmm. this series on Polly Platt, um, yeah. on yes. You Must Remember This, and it's so good. And I wish I could say it's changed hugely from the 70s when she was coming up to the 90s when I was coming up. But it's, um, you know, you, you make strides forward and then get pushed back. I mean, nobody wants to give up money and power. Yeah. Right. There's something else that I wanted to know about personally. Um, you had an enviable situation with a husband who wanted to stay home with the kids. And in the book, you kind of make it sound like it was an easy decision. And I wanted to know, is that something you guys talked about before having kids? Like, is that something that was in your deal almost? Yeah, I we very early on when we had just started dating, he said to me, if you want to have kids, I'll stay home. And wow. it was like the sexiest thing any man <laughs> had ever said to me. I mean, that was my, you know, here are two tickets to Paris. You know, we're yeah, leaving on the Concorde. Right. I think originally, probably, he was an architect. So financially, I made a lot more money. Um, he's younger than I am. He's six years younger. So I also was further along in my career. So... Mm-hmm. That all made sense. And then he was really good at it and he enjoyed it. (laughs) Right. And he was still able to do some work while the kids were young. He built an amazing castle on a mountaintop um, near Vegas um, for a magician who will go nameless. But it's an incredible building. And so I think he had enough creative fulfillment and he was he was a partner. He read every script I ever wrote. He's super funny. Um, so yeah, we had a good thing going. So nice. Speaking of nameless magicians, I loved how <laughs> Penn Jillette told you, "Nell, you're a terrible mother, but you're the world's greatest dad." <laughs> I know. And how first, like, it really, I felt this dagger to my heart, and then went, "Oh, he's right." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More women should be the world's greatest dad. I love that. Um, so I can't tell if you're going to hate this or not, but, um, we have a new feature where we're asking the beauty stuff. We're both scared. You're not going to like our, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like terrified. You're not, cause you seem like you're way above that, but everybody wants to know what is your number one beauty product? It's so unfair. I feel like so much is genetic. So I have, uh, my younger sister, no wrinkles, totally gray hair, me, tons of wrinkles, don't dye my hair. And it's just the so much of these things are the luck of the draw. 
But I mean, I do have a, can I give advice for women? Yeah, um, of course. So I know you talk about mentoring on your show. And as I've gotten older, I really do believe mentoring needs to go both ways. Because older women may have connections, but younger women have relevance. And I think mm. it just, mm. it's got to become more transactional. Like when I help young women, it's it's not out of maternal feelings. Like I want to create a network. <laughs> I don't want you to replace me. I want us to boost each other and, you know, open that door wider for even more women. So that's one part of mentoring. And then the other part is I really think 50-year-olds, for example, need to encourage 70-year-olds as much as they encourage 30-year-olds. Because what I see right. older women, and I, I, I find myself inching up to this line, is you reach a point where you're like, what's the point? I'm invisible. It's hard enough to write this stuff. And then I have to go back to dealing with rejections, and I'm just going to enjoy my life, which is fine. But you also... So many of these women have so much to say. So, you know, I've urged a lot of women to write memoirs, get their stories down. You know, we're, we're all obsessed with Hamilton, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Like, no one's going to tell your story unless you do. Mm, and so right. especially for writers, you have the means. And again, back to like this podcast about Polly Platt, you know, her memoir was never published, but you know, you listen to her story and you're so grateful that she put down her feelings about those days. So we need to help each other as much right. as we help younger women, I guess is my point. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Of course. I love it, yeah. Also, like 70-year-old women are like the most interesting people on earth. So agree. It's really true. I especially think that the closer I get to 70. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I want to believe it. Uh, thank you so much, Nell. This was really, Thanks, really Nell. fun. Oh, good. Thanks for having me. So listeners, go out and get Just the Funny Parts for an unflinching insider look at the TV writing and directing world in Hollywood. And it's very, very funny, despite being about also terrible sexism. <laughs> really funny. Really funny. Like you guys. Aww. Is there another way that you want people to find you? Oh, I'm Nelsco, N-E-L-L-S-C-O, at Twitter. That's good. Follow me. Follow her. Thanks so much for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts, Talia Bacassis and Kim France. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have suggestions for show ideas or anything else, you can reach us at tallyandkim at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram that is EIF Podcast, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.